My name is Dr Roger Charlton. I'm a general practitioner and associate clinical professor and GP specialty lead at Warwick Medical School. And it's my very great pleasure as part of the strategic partnership between Warwick University and Boston University in Massachusetts to welcome my colleague, Dr Chris Andre, who is an associate professor at Boston Medical Center, which is Boston Medical School in the Department of Pathology. Chris, we're very pleased to have you here at Warwick. We're very grateful to the Institute of Advanced Studies to be able to fund your visit and your collaborative time with us. Well, thank you very much, Roger. It's been a real pleasure to be here, to have a chance to spend some time to talk and meet and have time for reflection, our new favorite word which allows people who have academic interest to take some time, step away and give thought to the work they do and to the work that they plan to do. And it's been really good for us to have time to share our particular research interest in end-of-life care and particularly the bereavement uh, part of end-of-life care. It would be really good just to hear a little bit about... um, some of the activity of the decedent affairs office in Boston. How how did your interest in the area first come about? Well, the original, the Department of Pathology uh, serves the diagnostic uh, pathology laboratories for Boston Medical Center. And uh, just before the merger of the two predecessor hospitals that formed Boston Medical Center, Boston City Hospital and University Hospital, Our department was asked uh, to assume responsibility for the hospital mortuary and primarily because we were based in the building. And we took that uh, role on and then the chief of anatomic pathology, Dr. Michael uh, O'Brien, who was always uh, questing for ways to improve services, uh, proposed that we uh, replicate a model from uh, the University of Texas Uh, and created a decedent affairs office. And what that did was allow us to bring all the disparate components of uh, care of a patient and a patient's family under one office. Uh, So now we we, uh, attend a patient's death. We provide resources to both physician staff and to families. And if uh, um, aftercare is required, such as an autopsy or arrangements to facilitate uh, burial, particularly for our indigent patients, um, we take those duties on. And over the last uh, 16 years, as the the office has grown, we've assumed uh, increasing responsibility, making sure that regulatory agencies are contacted appropriately, and most recently developing a a liaison relationship with the New England Organ Bank, which has proved uh, very helpful for the hospital. So really we serve the hospital and are willing to take on uh, any and all uh, roles that the hospital would like us to, and are very much focused on uh, patient and family care in our our safety net hospital, which is very much a multicultural and multi-ethnic environment. Are working hard to be mindful of uh, cultural differences for our patients, and then also uh, serving the physician population to make sure that all the 
critical regulatory um, components of a, of a patient's death are, are completed. So the department has grown, the office has grown. We've been well supported on the off-shift by our colleagues that are supervisors who are a critical component of the service and uh, supported by uh, the chair and, of pathology and the chief who feel that our service is important and valuable. And now what's very interesting is it's an opportunity to uh, pursue some research interests, uh, collect and examine the data that we've, we've, um, we've uh, been collating over a number of years and start to uh, examine and draw conclusions from that data. It's always quite interesting visiting the U.S. because uh, some of the terminology we use, to a certain extent, can be understood in different ways. So decedent affairs office um, at a, a U.K. hospital, we might refer to that as the uh, bereavement office. Right. Uh, but in essence, it's, it's the same... Uh, the, the, the same the same office um, also it's probably helpful to make a distinction between changing terminology in relation to end of life care early on in the 60s at the time of Cecily Saunders and Kubler-Ross it, it was referred to as terminal care and then in the uh, late 1990s it was very much known as palliative care but in the last decade there's been a move to refer to it as end-of-life care, I think one of the areas we had have a particular interest and in, in where we share concern is how well prepared our graduate entry students are because we both have an interest in graduate entry medical education and both our medical schools, the intake of the students are our graduates, which is quite a unique thing for the UK, Warwick having the largest graduate entry medical school um, in England and one of the areas that uh, we're keen to explore and we've talked about quite extensively is um, are newly qualified doctors in the US and the UK are they prepared adequately from a training perspective what to do at the time of a patient's death um, and I sort of have divided it in into three areas that I call three P's. I sort of hate these acronyms, but what I've referred to as pity, practicalities and paperwork. And sometimes it's the latter bit that the newly qualified doctors are reasonably good at is the pa paperwork, but it's that when somebody's died, it's, it, it, it's being able to move out of a, a very acute, busy environment where there's a lot of acute activity either going on in the community or in the hospital to spend a little bit of time with the relatives, providing both hopefully sympathy and empathy. But then, particularly in relation to your office, is talking about the, the practicalities. Where do we go from here when a patient's died? And one of the great things that you've produced at Boston is your booklet. And I wondered if you might be able to say something about... Because it's a very practical guide when relatives are very much at a time of need and distress. Well, the booklet, my colleague uh, Christian Kyriakos, who's the uh, supervisor of the service and who's, who's essentially uh, run and managed and helped create the service over the last 16 years, and I felt that it would be very valuable to have a resource um, that we could hand out and make available to patients' families at the time of death. 
sometimes our families um, uh, experience uh, a loved one's death at a, at a moment of crisis, uh, possibly uh, after, a, after a homicide. Uh, sometimes they haven't been in touch with their family member and come into the hospital and are surprised by uh, their loved one's death. And then sometimes it's just the normal process of, of a patient uh, uh, dying at the hospital and family who either don't have very many resources to hand or are uh, new to the country or new to the city or uh, have uh, no cultural or who have no connection to Western uh, cultural framework and are looking uh, for answers and guidance as to how to manage uh, the, the care for their for their loved ones. So we put together a booklet. It really stemmed from the sorts of questions that were were very uh, were frequently asked of us. So uh, one of our hospital policies is to ask a family if they'd like to have an autopsy. Uh, it's not mandatory. So there are, there's a, a page describing what what's involved with an autopsy and 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 what that process is. We talk about um, body donation for medical education. We advise what happens with the patient's death certificate and how to procure a copy if you need to uh, uh, secure insurance uh, monies to facilitate burial. We give uh, some guidance to, uh, to a number of local uh, funeral homes so that people have a, have a number to call and don't have to hunt through the yellow pages. We have some information on grief support and um, dealing with the coroner, the office of the chief medical examiner, and then some key uh, telephone numbers and other guidelines about finances and, and government resources. So with help from uh, a woman called Marty Kovacs, who has actually written um, some faith-based uh, books on uh, uh, death and bereavement, uh, she uh, uh, essentially helped us put the, the guide together, and Christian and I served as, as editors for the guide. I believe it's been quite successful. That, that sort of leads me on to another point. I'm very glad you raised the issue about um, different languages. I had the great privilege of sitting in a clinic at Boston Medical Centre with Dr Joanne Wilkinson, and I didn't realise that she speaks fluent Spanish yes, as, as, yes. as well as English, but it was to really make the point that in both areas that we work, both in Boston and myself between uh, Coventry and Birmingham, we live in large multicultural cities where people come from different multi-faith backgrounds and also uh, speak several languages. So it's very important, as you say, for particularly in relation to your booklet and also in relation to uh, bereavement services, that people have access to those services, not necessarily in English, yes. but other languages. The <coughs> other thing that I thought was most interesting, and I think you said was possibly individual to Boston and not necessarily generalizable to the US but just to give an example in the UK or particularly in the area that we're working in the UK when somebody dies approximately 90% of people end up being cremated and 10% of people end up being buried but I know in Boston the figures were almost 90% of people being buried and perhaps Yes. 10% being cremated. Yes. I didn't yes. know if you might be able to expand on that a little bit. Well, I think it's predominantly... That's correct. I don't know the precise numbers, but it's very much... Uh, 
people are very much culturally driven uh, to a burial rather than to um, to cremation. Although I know cremation uh, is being uh, used as a means uh, for for disposition, uh, increasingly I suspect predominantly from a cost basis. I know that um, the traditional funeral uh, in Boston costs about ten thousand dollars, and that is based primarily on, on um, uh, Irish Catholic and, to some extent, um, Italian Catholic um, uh, 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 model, and that uh, involves using a funeral parlour. The patient is often embalmed so that they can, um, uh, can be viewed as awake, and then usually the second day uh, there's a funeral, and that cost is about $10,000. Uh, without um, um, extra trimmings of costs of limousines and so on and so forth. So that expense uh, is quite daunting for, for many families. Um, but we find that that those families are, are we have a large uh, Haitian-American population uh, who are predominantly of the Catholic faith, and, and then other uh, different cultures, uh, Muslim faith and the... Um, and the Jewish faith, who all uh, uh, trend to burying their loved ones rather than rather than cremating them. So, primarily, the fiscal uh, the fiscal piece is very is is a great challenge, and we're often asked, "Can we help and support uh, that uh, part of of the end of life?" So, I think uh, the experience is very different. I th I think the trend will change change and move more towards cremation but but the uh, core values certainly in Boston uh, lead families to this very traditional um, uh, western funeral style and then we do have quite a lot of families uh, who wish to send their loved one back overseas to their home of origin and that's often a challenge for them too and is very expensive and there are a number of funeral homes uh, locally, who help facilitate that, but uh, so there are lots of different ways of of working our way through that. Which is very interesting because I think this means that there are considerable training needs for for all staff, whether clinical or non-clinical, and gaining some sort of insight into the particular needs of different faith communities at the time of death. And one issue that can relate to, particularly in the case of sudden death, where, the, where a further inquiry is needed and the need for a, a post-mortem or autopsy, and needing also to be very sensitive to the needs of that particular faith community. One of the things that we try to do in training sessions for both our students and postgraduate trainees is a lot of emphasis trying to say please ascertain what the wishes of the family are rather than necessarily or at least being conscious that you mustn't impose what are your necessarily your own faith perspective right. on what somebody's needs might be at the time of death well i think um your point is well made we and i think we'll have further discussions, and that's a, a, a field of um, a mutual interest for for research. Is that our our physician staff do need 
um, a certain amount of uh, education administrative support when dealing and working with families who've, who've just had a death. I believe there's a, uh, a need for more training and uh, that's an area that, uh, that I'm very interested in, in exploring and, and working with our physician colleagues and the uh, Boston University School of Medicine uh, to find some time in a busy curriculum to include an opportunity to educate and train both medical students and our resident trainees, our, doc our junior doctors, who are being trained. Frequently a death occurs in the middle of the night, and uh, as we've discussed, uh, uh, a young doctor may not have even had an experience of managing a patient death in their families. And so as much education and support as uh, that we can give as possible is, is can only be beneficial. And so I'm looking forward to working with you uh, on that in that area, in that field, to um, to improve those services both in the hospital and maybe in the community. Yes, because we, we talked about the development of a, an evaluation tool for training purposes where we might be able to give a short questionnaire or short interview to uh, trainees before an ed educational activity and then some time afterwards uh, to see what the benefit would be to the trainees of it and whether they then felt better prepared at that very difficult time of a patient's death to help families and loved ones. I, I know it's something that trainees do find very difficult and even as a, a practitioner myself of several years on it's always one that raises great challenges every time a patient dies and the most difficult challenge is trying to explore what the wishes and needs of the family are and occasionally you did mention particularly in relation to organ donation that sometimes somebody prior to death may have stipulated certain wishes but after death the family may have a different interpretation of those wishes and it's sometimes trying to meet what can be a conflict and coming to a resolution which is um, acceptable from both you wishing to honour the wishes of the deceased and also the wishes of often, understandably, a distressed family and yes. sort of being able to be sensitive in that situation. And that's one of the issues that I particularly feel for doctors who've just qualified um, because it's often, I think we said it was the junior doctors that tend to be involved in these discussions with the families rather than senior doctors who tend to have to go on to managing the next acute emergency that would come into the emergency room or accident and emergency yes. department. Um, but it's trying to reserve that time to try and meet the needs of distressed, distressed families. Well, I agree. And thank you very much, Dr Chris Andre, for coming to join us as part of the Boston Warwick Strategic Partnership. It's been a wonderful opportunity to share an area of common interest and also to decide how we can explore those issues in the future in both medical education, research and training because we've got a lot of important experiences to share. So on behalf of Warwick University, thank you very much for your time and travel, which is a long journey, over to the UK and we've been very, very honoured and pleased to to have you. I look forward very much to us continuing uh, to explore 
our interests and our and our future research, and feel that uh, anything we can do to help a family uh, in a time of uh, great need, and to also educate and support our uh, junior physicians in any way we can uh, is of great value and importance. So thank you very much for having me.